Ernest Becker, back in 1974, wrote a pretty uh, uh, prolific book called The Denial of Death, which won the Pulitzer Prize um, in 74. You probably never heard of this guy, but that's kind of the way these things work. You have these, these pivotal um, academic works that become uh, kind of transforming to the culture, and then it works its way down um, through the music and through um, pop culture. And so in this book, Ernest Becker writes these words. This is the terror, to have emerged from nothing, to have a name, consciousness of self, deep inner feelings, an excruciating inner yearning for life and self-expression, and yet with all of this, to die. He goes on in this book to write about how the terror of death is so life-shaking that whether consciously or subconsciously, it impacts the decisions that we make Every single day, the big decisions, the small decisions. And this is why we aren't merely just afraid of death, which we are, but because death impacts even the day-to-day decisions of our life, we resent death. It's not merely that we're afraid of it, it's that we resent it because we can never really escape it. We resent death because we know that it ends me. It destroys me. Death is an assault against me. My plans, my dreams, my hopes, death tries to end me. And ironically, if we're going to truly live and build a life of meaning and significance that isn't um, constantly hindered and weighed down by this fear and resentment of death, everybody has to figure out what are you going to do with the problem of death. And for some, the answer to death is simply to just deal with it. Like, grow up a little bit. It's a fixed fact. There's nothing you can do to prevent it, so you might as well just accept it as kind of a natural structure of human life. Everyone starts with birth, then they pass through the different stages of life, and then death is that period at the end of everybody's life. Some will say death, because of that, makes our time limited. It makes our choices matter. And ironically, they'll say it's actually death that makes life valuable. And so when you can just get over the terror of death and actually begin to embrace it, then you can have a meaningful life, make impactful decisions, and live a life of significance with the time that you have. Now the problem with this philosophy, the problem with this thinking is that it goes against every inclination that you and I have, that death isn't natural, that there shouldn't be a period on the end of our life. Everybody intuitively knows that death is an intruder, that eternity is written into the very DNA and fabric of our life. And merely accepting death as a fixed fact doesn't do anything to solve the problem of death. It simply is just coming to terms with it. It's coping with it. But what if if instead of accepting death or coping with death and embracing death, we could actually defeat death and have everlasting life? Today as we wrap up the Apostles' Creed, we come to that final line that says, I believe in life everlasting Amen. Christians believe in everlasting life. We believe that there is not a period at the end. We believe in eternal life. Now, that's not just some fantasy that we've created to alleviate the fear of death so that we can um, get on with life. For the Christian, we believe that death is an intruder and God has definitively and decisively dealt with death. 
We actually don't believe that it's death that gives meaning to life. Christians believe that life is what gives meaning to life. And in Christ, Christians have life because we have God. God is life. And when we have him, we have life. Last week, Pastor Jeremy walked us through that beautiful doctrine of the resurrection of the body and how God interrupts our death from uncreating us. What death intends to separate and destroy, God brings back together again in a glorious way by giving us new, imperishable, incorruptible, resurrected bodies to live and enjoy God forever. This week, we want to unpack what it means, uh, what that forever life looks like. We want to unpack the Christian hope of eternal life. And we're going to see three things as we do. First, that eternal life means the end of our exile and separation from God. Second, we're going to see that everlasting life is not merely an increase in quantity. It's not just that we have more days to live. It's an increase in quality that's marked by ever-increasing joy. And finally, we'll see that our coming eternal life is not merely just a doctrine for tomorrow. It's a doctrine for today as it gives us endurance for living today. So we're going to see the end of our exile. We're going to see ever-increasing joy. And we're going to see endurance for today. So let's begin first with the end of exile. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So today we're looking at the end of human history, what eternal life looks like, but the end doesn't make sense without understanding the beginning. The solution to the problem doesn't make sense if you don't understand what the problem really is. So we have to go back to the garden again to see our first uh, parents and the choice that they had to make. They could choose relational harmony and abundant joy with God where their work was meaningful, where needs were provided, and life was fulfilling. Or they could choose the path of personal autonomy, self-determination, and a life apart from God characterized by separation, struggle, and shame. God uh, uh, kind of um, ra- uh, summarized all of that by saying, if you don't choose me, you will die. And we know the story, chapter 3 details how Adam and Eve gave in to the temptations of the serpent. serpent, uh, serpent. They gave in to the fulfillment of their own passions and desires. And in eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they brought about disaster, disorder, destruction, and death just like God had warned them. Now, in that moment, you'll notice something, right? They don't actually die. They don't eat a piece of the fruit and keel over and die. But in that moment, the disease of sin entered their body and the process of decay and entropy and disaster began. Now, they also had a choice in that moment. In that moment, as they felt the icy sting of death, they could have reached out for the God of life. They could have looked for God and said, God, something terrible has happened. They could have run to him for healing and forgiveness. But instead, they were consumed by guilt and shame and fear. And as God's presence drew near to him, what did they do? They hid from him, which is kind of a bad idea. You can't really hide from God, right? 
But it's the inclination. When you feel the guilt and when you feel the shame, you, you, you just instinctively try to hide from God. And what we notice is that their sin caused this separation from God. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man. And at the east, uh, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, means angels, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. After God explained to them the, the nature of the curse, the nature of sin, and the devastating effects of choosing personal autonomy over relational harmony, God sends them away. They're exiled from the garden. There's angels with flaming swords that are rotating every which way so that if man had any inclination to try to sneak back in, they know they wouldn't make it. It's like something out of the Matrix or something. It's awesome. They're exiled from the garden. What does it mean to be exiled? Well, it means to be banished or forced out of your home, right? When a person is exiled, it leaves them with two problems. There's a broken relationship and they're displaced, right? Some kind of meaningful relationship is broken and as a result, a person can't go home. So to be exiled, whether it's politically or in a domestic sense, whatever it is, to be exiled is to experience relational brokenness and a displaced homelessness. Listen to the verbs used in those verses I just read. It said, God sent him out. He drove out the man and he guarded the way back. Sin has caused a conflict, a breach and a tearing of a relationship that's resulted in relational brokenness. And now they don't have a home. J.R. Tolkien once wrote a letter to his son, Christopher and he was writing to him, and he said, We all long for Eden, and we're constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature, at its best and least corrupted, in its gentleness and most humane. What he's saying is, at our best, we're still soaked with a sense of exile. What he's saying is that everyone that has ever lived has had this longing, these, these kind of faint memories of Eden. We know that something's not right, that the world's not the way it's supposed to be, and our longings never quite find satisfaction because our lives are soaked with a sense of exile. And when you keep reading in the Bible, you will see that this theme of exile never goes away. In the next chapter, Cain kills his brother Abel, which like murders the definition of relational brokenness, isn't it? It doesn't get much broke, more broken than that. And what happens to him? He's forced to live in exile in a place called Nod, which means the land of wandering. He's exiled out of uh, his family in their land to go to a place of wandering. In the book of Exodus, we see the Jews become enslaved. They're exiled in Egypt, unable to go back home. You fast forward several hundred years, the people of God finally become a nation with a land of their own. And here you see that God instructs them to set up a temple, a place for God's presence to dwell among them. This is kind of that first glimpse that we see that God still has a plan, a desire to live among his people. 
but the temple is just one small step forward. It's not unrestricted presence. It's, it, it, it's presence that's very much restricted. It's restricted to one physical location instead of being all over the earth. And only one person once a year is allowed to go into this most holy place where God's presence dwells. It's like the, the, the door has been cracked open just a little bit. There's some light shining through, but the fullness of God's glory and presence isn't there. And this room is called the most holy place. And there's this massive curtain, like thicker than the ones you see on the wall right now. It's heavy. Not one person could lift it. And embroidered on the curtain are the cherubim. It's another reminder of the angels that guard the entrance to the garden. Though progress is being made, it's another reminder that the time of exile is not over. And eventually, the nation of Israel is conquered by Babylon, and they're deported, and yet again, they're forced to live in exile. And you begin to wonder as you read the Old Testament, will this time of exile ever end? And then when you flip over into the New Testament, you see God's plan for redemption and restoration start to take shape in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. John, the apostle, tells us that Jesus is God in the flesh who came to dwell among us so that our relationship with God could be restored once again. And when you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus is a man who lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He, he maintained a perfect relationship with God. He never felt that sin-soaked sense of exile. And when he went on to the cross, he took on our sin. One way to think about him taking on our sin is that he took on our exile. He became soaked with the sense of exile so that we could be restored in our relationship with God. Jesus was separated and cut off from God, serving our sentence of exile so that we could be restored and one day we could go home. And to make sure that we understand this message loud and clear, the Bible says that when Jesus died, the temple curtain tore in two. Look with me at Matthew chapter 27. This is Jesus on the cross. This is the moment of his death. And Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The temple curtain, the one I told you that was massive and huge and had the embroidered cherubim on it, it tore in two from top to bottom to show that the sacrifice of Christ was accepted as the payment price for sin. It tore in two to show that the presence of God was no longer restricted but available to all. It tore in two to be a declarative sentence in the world to say the time of our exile is coming to an end. The death and resurrection of Christ showed that our exile was coming to an end. And now we step into Revelation 21 that Mandy just read to us to read about the day when our exile finally comes to an end. Look with me at verse 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In this chapter, the Apostle John says that when the battle is over and sin and Satan and death are no more, God recreates the heavens and the earth to give us a renewed place to live. 
Now this is important because as embodied people, as people who have this glorious new resurrected bodies, we need a place, a home to live that's gone through the same kind of transformation that we have. What good is it for us to be cleaned up and restored but to still live on a sin-soaked earth? Remember at this point, in the, in, uh, in, in the storyline, believers have been raised to life and are living in their gloriously new resurrected bodies, and we need a place to live. Remember what Paul says in the, in the book of Romans chapter 8, verse 19 and 21. He says, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What he's saying is that the creation itself, the ground you and I are standing on right now, is longing for this day when it will be set free from the decay and destruction and disorder brought about by our sin. And now in Revelation 21, we see God is bringing about the redemption and renewal of the whole created order. Redemption is not just for us. It's for everything God has created. And now God gives his people a place to live. And John describes it by saying, behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That word new here refers to quality, not necessarily like newness in time, not brand new, but new in quality. The point being made here is that the creation is undergoing a massive renovation project. It's going through a, 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 a renewal like HGTV has never seen before. It's being restored like an old classic car that's pulled out of the junkyard to be fully restored. All the rust will be removed. Every bump is banged out. There's new leather put on the seats. The engine and the transmission have been rebuilt and restored. There's new glass, new tires, new brakes, new paint. It's the same car, but it's new. It's new. And this renewed creation will become the permanent home for the redeemed children of God. But not only is the entire earth going through a renovation, John says he, he sees this new holy city coming down out of, uh, of heaven called the New Jerusalem. It's described as a beautifully adorned bride coming down the aisle to meet her groom. What do we know about brides, right? On the day of their wedding, do they just uh, kind of frump out of bed and, and walk down the aisle? No, hours. Like all the preparation for months going into it, and then on that day, they're getting up before the crack of dawn to make sure every hair is put in place, to make sure every jewel is where it's supposed to be, this dress that's never been worn and will never be worn again, all of it, all the preparation so that when the double doors open at the back of the room, everyone stands and sees the bride beautifully adorned coming down the aisle to meet her groom. That's how the Apostle John says, this new city is unlike anything you've ever seen before, beautifully adorned, every detail taken care of. And we will all, like, like, the, like the people in the church who stand up and rise to look at the beautiful bride coming down the aisle, we will too look and, uh, and, and be amazed at the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, a place made, made fit and perfect for you and I to live, a place that we can finally call home. And that's not even the best part. The best part is that God himself will be there. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you notice how redundant that verse is? Three times in one verse, John repeats himself so that you won't miss it. God will once again dwell with humanity. Our exile will finally and fully come to an end. We will be his people. He will be our God. We will have a place to call home where our relationship with God is fully and finally restored. Our relationship with our brothers and sisters no longer feels the tension, and we're welcomed home as beloved children. Everlasting life means we have a place to live as the people of God, to enjoy the full and unrestricted presence of God. We will go home. Our family will be brought back together again. Life everlasting means the exile is over. But it also means we can have ever-increasing joy. Now, what do I mean by ever-increasing joy? Well, first of all, I don't simply mean that it's awesome. It's going to be awesome to live forever. I'm not talking about quantity of life. I'm not talking about days without end. I'm talking about quality of life, not merely quantity. And that distinction is really important. People have often thought that the idea of living forever would eventually become boring. Anyone ever thought about that? Like eventually, like what would we do? Like wouldn't we run out of things to keep us occupied? That at some point, wouldn't you run out of meaningful experiences? That there'd be nothing left to live for. This is an incredible short story called The Immortal uh, by an Argentinian writer named Jorge Luis Borges. And it tells the story of a man who drinks from the river of immortality and becomes immortal. And for a while, he's elated. He travels the world. He sees all of the wonders. He experiences all that life has to offer. But after a while, he becomes bored. He's tried everything. He's been everywhere. There's no experience he hasn't tried. People that he loves come and go. And eventually, hundreds of years later, he begins to long for death. And one day, the man learns of another river that can take immortality away. And for centuries, he travels the earth and wanders the earth and drinks from every spring and every river and every body of water, hoping that the curse of immortality and endless life would go away. Friends, that's not what life everlasting is. That's not what the Bible promises, simply endless days of life. It is that, but eternal life is not merely about quantity, it's about quality. It's about ever-increasing joy. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love them. God has prepared a life of ever-increasing joy for those who love him. That is greater than anything you've ever seen. It's greater than anything you've ever heard. It's greater than anything you could ever imagine. No matter how good this sermon is right now, I cannot articulate the things that God has prepared for those who love him. It's more than we can even imagine. Our languages fail to describe it. So what does ever-increasing joy mean? 
Let me give you three things that I think it means. The first is, our every obstacle to our joy is removed. Ever-increasing joy means every obstacle to your joy will be removed. Look with me at Revelation 21, 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The Apostle John says, All the suffering, all the struggle will be gone. We will be welcomed into our new life in the arms of a father who tenderly and lovingly will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And he will tell us, child, there is nothing left to fear. Death is no more. Mourning, crying, and pain, they have no place here. John says all of those are their former things. They don't belong anymore. They're gone. They're things of the past because I am making all things new. Can you even imagine a world without crying and pain? I mean, can you even imagine a world without suffering and struggle where every element of the curse, every sting from sin, every marker of death will be completely gone because the time of struggle and suffering is over. Not only is everlasting life a life without end, it's a life free of all defects. Where death and sin and pain and suffering stand in the way of our joy today, there's coming a day when every obstacle will be removed. In the Lord of the Rings, you gotta grant me a couple of Tolkien quotes, okay? In the Lord of the Rings, do you remember that scene after the ring has been destroyed? It's at the very end of the book and the movie. The book is better. The ring has been destroyed. Samwise, Gamgee, and Frodo have passed out from the whole ordeal. And eventually Samwise wakes up. And he's surprised, first of all, that he's alive, right? He thought he had died, he's a, he, given all that he and Frodo have been through. And he sees Gandalf. And he's surprised to see Gandalf, because if you know the story, he hasn't seen Gandalf. He thinks Gandalf was dead. And then he looks up at Gandalf, and he says these words, Is everything sad going to come untrue? Now, his question is profound because it's not merely asking, are there more good things to come like this, like being alive and seeing a good friend? He's, are there more good things coming? He Rather, he's asking, will all the sadness, all the sad things that I know that have been true, will they even become untrue? And that's precisely what God is saying. He says, behold, I am making all things new. What he's saying is that even the sad things will become untrue. C.S. Lewis said that the glory of heaven will work backwards to even make the suffering undone. The curse and all its evilness will be undone and the world will be good, true, and beautiful once again. Ever increasing joy means that every obstacle to our joy will be completely and totally removed. Second, ever increasing joy means that our capacity for joy is increased. Even our very capacity for joy will be increased. Look at Isaiah 65, verse 17 and 18. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. 
The last few chapters of Isaiah look forward to the new creation when God's people will enjoy the new creation with him. And he tells us that we will be a people who rejoice. We will experience joy forever because the new creation is precisely a place for joy. That's why God created it, is to be a place of joy. Now, when I say joy, don't confuse that with happiness. Happiness and joy are two different things. Happiness is circumstantial and often fleeting. Happiness can make us feel good and lift it up. But joy is a deeper thing. It's a transformative thing. It's a lasting thing. Listen to how David Brooks describes the difference between joy and happiness in his new book, The Second Mountain. He says, we can help create happiness, but we are seized by joy. We're pleased by happiness, but we're transformed by joy. Listen to this. When we experience joy, we often feel we have glimpsed into a deeper and truer layer of reality. Isn't that so true? What Brooks is saying is that we instinctively know the difference between happiness and joy. Because when we experience uh, joy, it captivates us. It It changes us. It transforms us. And we're left with a sense that there's something deeper and truer that this moment, this moment of joy points to. Every taste of joy that you experience in this life is telling you that there's a foretaste of deeper joy, truer joy, everlasting joy that is to come. Brothers and sisters, we are headed for a new creation that was created to be a joy. Look what Isaiah 61.7 says. Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. What is that double portion? Everlasting joy. When the obstacles to our joy have been removed, when shame and dishonor and guilt and fear and death are no more, you will have a double portion of everlasting joy, a joy that is without limits and without end. And in our new glorified and resurrected bodies that never grow old, that never fatigue, your capacity to enjoy and experience God's everlasting joy will be like nothing you can even imagine now. Imagine a day when there's no anxiety when there's no regrets, no feelings of emptiness or rejection, no depression or bitterness, no unmet needs, just boundless, limitless energy and excitement to experience and enjoy the double portion of everlasting joy that God has set aside for you. Again, we can't even imagine what that would be like. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy is at the very heart of why Jesus came. He came so that we could have an abundant life that's marked by fullness of joy. Ever increasing joy means our capacities to even experience it will increase And third and finally, ever-increasing joy means that our eternal source for joy is always with us. Now think about that progression. All the obstacles have been removed. Your tanking capacity for joy will be removed. And now your source for joy will be with you, right? All that you need for joy will be there. Look at Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is what? Fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist tells us that the key to fullness of joy is found in the presence of God. He is the source of joy. You cannot have joy apart from him. 
It's not possible. He's the source of joy. Every joy you've ever experienced has been a foretaste of the joy that comes with knowing God. We know the presence of God now, but even now, even as believers in Christ who have the Spirit of God, our joy, our experience of his presence is still limited and restricted. Why? We're still weak in our sin. Our sinfulness still distracts us. Our capacity for joy has not been increased. Our bodies grow weary and tired. And all of that keeps us from experience the fullness of God's presence and therefore the fullness of joy. But in the new creation, all obstacles are removed. Our tank, our capacity for joy is increased and our source for joy, God's very presence will be unrestricted. Fullness of joy is ours. Being with God and enjoying fellowship with God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, is what eternal life is all about. Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life. He's telling us. What is eternal life? It's this. Look what he says. That they know you, God, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is nothing if it's not knowing about Jesus and experiencing and enjoying that relationship with him forever. Jesus is the source of life. And to be united with him is to have eternal life and with it ever increasing joy. I love how J.I. Packer summarizes it. He says this, being with Jesus is the essence of heaven. No Jesus, no heaven. It is what everlasting life is all about. So what will we do in heaven? Not lounge around, but worship, work, think, communicate, enjoying activity, beauty, people, and God. First and foremost, however, we shall see and love Jesus, our Savior, Master, and Friend. Brothers and sisters, everlasting life means not only that our exile is over, but it also means we will experience ever-increasing joy for all eternity that's beyond our ability to comprehend. It's why you will not grow bored. Experience it. You can't even think about the kinds of experiences, the things that, are, uh, that God has set aside for you. God himself is limitless, which means his joy and presence is limitless. You will not exhaust the joy that God will give you. And finally, everlasting life means that we can have endurance for today. The end, everlasting life, eternal life is not simply a doctrine for tomorrow. It is a doctrine for today. So how do we live today in light of eternal life? Like today we're acutely aware that our exile isn't over. We're acutely aware that we are not in this new creation yet. We're acutely aware that our bodies grow tired and weak, that we are not experiencing the fullness of God's presence, and therefore we are not experiencing everlasting and ever-increasing joy. Even as believers now, our relationship with God is restored, but we don't experience the fullness that that relationship will be. So until the return of Christ, Christians are called to endure as exiles. Let me give you, there's like a ton of applications that you could go. Let me just give you three as we close. First, let's be a people who eagerly await the return of Christ. Keeping the end in mind. Look what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some translations say, and from it, we eagerly await a savior. Paul's reminding us, 
your citizenship, if you are in Christ, is in heaven. That's where our home is. So he's saying, keep your minds focused on that. Don't so get accustomed to living here that you put all your hope, all your joy, all your energy here and forget where your true home is. Whatever joys, whatever pleasures this world has to offer, they pale in comparison to the life that is to come. So let's be a people who eagerly await the return of Christ. Second, let's be a people who endure to the end. Look what the Apostle Paul says again in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Part of living in exile means that we will often endure suffering. Paul says that our present sufferings will not only be outweighed by an eternal weight of glory, he says our suffering will actually prepare you for your inheritance. Randy Alcorn says this, present sufferings must be seen in light of the promise of eternal happiness in God. The scales can't be balanced in this life alone. What is he saying? He's saying when you're going through suffering, you have to keep the end in mind because on this side of heaven, you will experience injustice. You will experience suffering. You will experience pain and very likely, almost guaranteed, the scales, the balance of justice will not be uh, balanced here. You will not have an equal proportion of suffering and delight here. It may be that the scales are tipped not in your favor. However, our hope is not in this life alone. God promises whatever suffering is crushing you now, one day you will look back on it and say it was merely light and momentary. And you might be thinking, there's no way I'll ever say that about the stuff I'm going through right now. What I'm telling you is this, the coming glory and joy is such that it transforms the crushing suffering of today into light and momentary trivialities. That's not to belittle what you're going through right now. I'm not saying it feels light and momentary now. Right now it feels crushing and it's weighing you down. But what I am saying is the coming glory is so great and so beautiful and so powerful that when you believe it now and you believe in the promise and the goodness of everlasting life now, it will not only help you endure, but there's coming a day when you will look back on it and say, it really was momentary and light because of the joy and the glory I'm experiencing now. Third and finally, how do we apply this doctrine of tomorrow today? Let's ensure that we actually have that inheritance. Right? It's all well and good to go, man, that's an amazing thing that's coming. But if it's not yours, you don't get to benefit from the blessings of that inheritance. Look what John says in the last part of 21. And he said to me, it is done. Those are some of the most beautiful words in all of scripture. Jesus is speaking, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning to the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. 
But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The Apostle John tells us how we can ensure our inheritance. He says that those who conquer, God will be their father and they will be like his sons and daughters. And they will drink from the springs of the water of life without any need for payment. Why won't we have to pay for this glorious inheritance? Because the bill's already been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. So how do we ensure our inheritance? How do we become the conquerors? John says it like this, be thirsty. Did you catch that? He said, to the thirsty, I will give springs of water of life. How do we conquer? We thirst for it. We want it. He's saying, be thirsty for God and you will be satisfied. You will be called his son. If you're thirsty, you will be called his daughter. That's what separates the children of God from everyone else in that list, the faithless, the sexually immoral. Do you realize that um, their identity is marked by their sin because they're not sons and daughters of God? It's not that sons and daughters of God haven't committed those sins. We have. But what he's saying is to the thirsty, you've conquered, you've become an adopted son and daughter of God, and your identity is no longer in your sin, but your identity is in the fact that you are a beloved son and daughter of God. That's what separates the children of God from the faithless. The faithless aren't thirsty for God, and so they will not conquer. Their sins are not paid for, and they're still identified by their sins instead of being identified as sons and daughters of God. And the distinction, the thing that separates the children of God from everyone else is thirst. Do you thirst? Are you thirsty? Do you want to drink from the spring of water of life without payment? If you're thirsty, God says, come and drink. Come and drink and be satisfied from the spring of everlasting life.